The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 14. It's on page 847 if you're using the Bible underneath the chair in front of you. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. John 14, we'll start in verse 15 and we'll go through the end of the chapter. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live." In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Well, you just heard we are uh, wrapping out at least the back half of John chapter 14. Um, And really what we have is a straight continuation of thought from last week. John 14 is really one giant conversation, but just to be able to handle the conversation in a a bite-sized kind of manner, we split the conversation in half. Half we looked at last week, the other half we're going to look at this morning. And as Jesus continues the conversation, he's narrowing in specifically on the person of the Holy Spirit. It's uh, texts like this in the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is going to talk about the Holy Spirit at least two other times, John 15 and 16, if my memory is serving me right, um, that um, led me to come and preach uh, through the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, For myself, as I continue to grow as a follower of Jesus, what became very apparent is just my... uh, I could go a lot deeper in my understanding of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and I want to grow more and more deeper in my understanding of the Holy Spirit. And as I go on this journey, um, I was wanting to bring you guys along as well. And so my aim was to ask the Lord, well, where is a good place to start to just be able to talk about the things of the Spirit? And sort of the reply got back as well, who better to learn about the Holy Spirit than Jesus when he talks about the Holy Spirit? So let's just go and start there. And that's why we find ourselves working through John chapters 13 through 17, so that when those moments of talking about the Holy Spirit come up from Jesus and his ministry and the promises and what he's going to accomplish and how he is, um, moves and fills us so that we may be a people who go forth empowered by the Spirit, my aim is for us to grow in that way. And so I'm just giving you that heads up that right now is one of those first times that Jesus is really going to laser-like focus in on the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what is our main idea this morning as we look at the back half of John 14? It's this, Jesus will not leave us as orphans. If he departs, he will send the Holy Spirit. He's not going to leave us as orphans. This is partly wrapped up in that idea of him saying, let not your heart be troubled. Why? Because just because I'm leaving doesn't mean you're going to be left alone. I am going to send someone to help you because if I depart, what you need to know is that I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. So let's pause. Let's pray. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit to help us understand Jesus' teaching about him. Then we'll dive into the text, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for describing and, and calling the Holy Spirit the helper. The helper. That tells me that the Holy Spirit loves, desires to help. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking that you would help us to understand the Scriptures before us this morning. Please help us to see our need for Jesus. Please help us to wrap our mind around the promise of you. Help us to wrap our mind around your ministry of teaching. Please help us to walk in such a manner to where we are filled and empowered by you so that your aim, which is to magnify Jesus, would be accomplished and come to fruition in our lives, all because of your help. I'm a needy man. I need your help. Holy Spirit, please fill. Please move so that the glory the Father is worthy of would be received this morning. It's in your name, King Jesus, I pray. Amen. Just think about all that we've seen so far in John chapter 13 and 14. Uh, this thought comes to mind. I wonder if the anxiety that overwhelming sorrow, the troubling of heart that Jesus is addressing right now in the hearts of the disciples. I just wonder if the anxiety of 
the disciples are experiencing is due in part to the change that is taking place in the relationship that they have with Jesus, their teacher, their Lord. Think about it. For months, they've walked step for step with Jesus. They've experienced everything from the mundane to the miraculous with Jesus. They have attended weddings with Jesus. They've attended funerals with Jesus. Some days they've eaten little with Jesus, and some days they've had their fill of wonder bread created by Jesus. But now Jesus says, I'm leaving, and their relationship with Jesus is changing. My guess is that some of us have experienced a similar kind of relationship change where a person that we love, a person that we cherish, a person that we are just sort of uniquely have our hearts and souls and minds knit together, someone we laugh with, someone that we cry with, someone we do life with, that person, all of a sudden a circumstance comes and that person says, I got to go. I'm leaving. I'm departing. My hunch is that some of us here have experienced that. And in that experience, we find ourselves experiencing the same feelings that the disciples are feeling right now in this moment. Because a relationship is changing, we know the kind of anxious sorrow the disciples are feeling because we too have just had the same experience in life. Remember, Jesus has said in John chapter 13, where I am going, you cannot come. And as we saw, this is extremely troubling to Jesus' friends. So knowing his friends are troubled... Jesus started last week, the beginning of John chapter 14. And as I said, he's going to continue what he started last week by talking about and explaining why his departure is actually extremely good news for his friends. Even though he is leaving, he guarantees to not leave them as orphans By giving them the promise of the Holy Spirit. The promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what we first see in verses 15 through 18. Now, real quick, what I want to do is just give a a quick illustration to try to just help you, uh, give you some hooks to hang your thoughts on as we work through verses 15 through 31. My encouragement for you is to sort of approach this uh, like a sandwich, uh, more like sort of like a Holy Spirit sandwich. Now, I'm not doing that to try to like denigrate the Spirit or try to to uh, lessen His power in any way. But if you think about a sandwich, you got bread toppings, bread. You got those two outer pieces of bread that smush together what's on the inside. In a way, that's how Jesus is approaching His conversation about the Holy Spirit right now in the back half of John 14. These first couple of verses are like the first piece of bread. He's going to talk about the Holy Spirit. 
He's going to come later, starting in verse 25, and talk about the Holy Spirit again. So that's sort of the two pieces of bread, where the middle part, verses 19 through 24, are going to be sort of the the toppings, as it were, that are being smushed together by him talking about these two realities, okay? So you just need to understand that is how Jesus is flowing through the text this morning. Because at first glance, there is a lot of information going on here. Some really deep, deep information. But if you can just come at it with that high-level view of, he's going to talk a little bit about the Spirit. Judas, not Iscariot's going to ask a question. He's going to talk about that. Then he's going to come back to sort of that last piece of bread, the Holy Spirit. And then he's going to land the plane, okay? So, to our first point, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18. Jesus tells his disciples this, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. His departure is for their good because his departure means Jesus is going to ask the Father to give a forever gift. A forever gift. Someone he calls the helper, the spirit of truth. Once given to believers, the Holy Spirit will never be taken away. Verse 16, Now I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. You see, the world cannot receive the Spirit, Jesus says, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But the disciples, they do know the Spirit, for the Spirit dwells with them. And as we learn in Acts chapter 2, after Pentecost, the Spirit will be in them, Jesus says. Now, what's so important about Jesus' guarantee to not leave the disciples, to not leave his followers, those who are looking to the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation, what's so important to understand about Jesus' guarantee to not leave us as orphans is that the promise of the Holy Spirit to be this gift that we receive, this is the second answer for how the greater works that we talked about last week are going to be accomplished. Remember what we said last week. All you got to do is scroll your eyes a couple of verses up to the latter verses there of last week's preaching text. Verses 12, 13, and 14. And what did Jesus say? He said, it's going to be good news for you guys that I'm leaving. And then he gives the promise of answered prayer. He says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. So here's Jesus giving a promise that those who are following him will do the same, same works that he did, but these works will be even greater. We said the greaterness of these works aren't more spectacular than Jesus. No one can out-spectacular Jesus. But the greater works were sort of in the breadth and the width and the spread. Jesus basically spent the bulk of his life hovering around Israel pouring his life into 12 people, people who were radically changed by the good news of a Savior crucified and resurrected. But then just imagine what happens in the book of Acts. You have a greater work being done in the sense that these men, filled by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, 
are released and move from Jerusalem to Judea, from Judea to Samaria, from Samaria to the ends of the known earth at that time. And to quote the book of Acts, the world was dumped upside down on its head. That is an example of greater works. And so Jesus is saying one of the ways these greater works are going to take place is as we pray in his name according to his will and prayers that align with glory to God. That was answer one for how these greater works are going to be accomplished. Just rolling on smooth. There's not a break there. We had to force a break. Jesus says, and now do you want to know the second answer for how these greater works are going to be achieved in the world? And we're all sitting here going, yes, please tell us. He says, it's the promise of the Holy Spirit. It's the promise of the Holy Spirit coming to you. This is how these greater works are going to be accomplished. In other words, Jesus' departure does not spell out their doom. Rather, Jesus' departure secures, listen, it secures the success of the forward march of the gospel. The Father's plan for the spread of the gospel and the salvation of the nations will be through the people of God Empowered by the Spirit of God, this is how God's saving mission will be achieved. Several years ago, um, I was able to listen to a sermon at a conference, I believe it was, by a man named David Platt. If you've ever done uh, the Secret Church events, that's David Platt, um, Radical.net. If you've ever been onto that website, that's David Platt. Um, he functioned as the president of the International Mission Board for the Southern Baptist Convention for several years before he stepped down, and now he's pastoring a church over on the East Coast. But I heard David Platt pose a question at this sermon, at this, this conference I'm listening to, and it's a question I'll, I'll never forget. A question I'll never forget. He asked this, What is the greatest hindrance to the advance of God's mission in the world today. What is the greatest hindrance to the advance of God's mission in the world today? My mind started buzzing. I'm, I'm thinking along all kinds of lines, right? Maybe lack of money. Maybe there's not enough people. Maybe it's just people aren't aware or whatever it might be. And I remember him continuing and saying, listen, he says, it's not primarily the hindrance. It's not primarily. You can't hang the hindrance all on the hook of lack of funds. You cannot hang the hindrance primarily on a lack of people. You cannot hang the hindrance on primarily a lack of awareness. You cannot hang the hindrance primarily on a lack of people going. Platt said... The greatest hindrance to the advance of God's mission in the world today is the people of God doing the work of God. And this is what struck me, apart from the Spirit of God. Apart from the Spirit of God. The greatest hindrance, in other words, what he's driving at, is that you and I are prone to believe the gospel of King Jesus will advance in the hearts and lives of those around us as long as we have good strategies in place, as long as we have good systems in place, as long as we've got good structures in place. We're prone to believe that when Jesus presents an opportunity for us to open our mouths and share the gospel, that if we can just conjure up the right words... 
if we can just answer all this person's questions, if we can just sort of crush that presentation of the gospel, this is what's going to lead to that person having a repentant heart. But according to Jesus, this is not how the kingdom advances in the hearts and lives of men and women. To act in this way alone, what I'm not saying is that strategies, systems, and structures stink and we should not have them. If you go into Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I think you see systems, strategies, and structures. You guys wait here, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. That's a strategy, that's a structure. But what does Jesus say? Don't you dare depart, don't you dare go until the promise of the Father is given to you and you are filled with the Holy Spirit. No amount of strategy, structures, and systems alone will see the Great Commission accomplished. Alone. But strategies, systems, and structured, structures being organized and accomplished and done by men and by women filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, friends, the Great Commission will be accomplished. It will be accomplished. So hear me emphasize that word alone. To act in these ways alone is to rely upon the skills you and I bring to the table. If we're just going to rely upon conjuring up the right words, the right questions, nailing the presentations, systems, strategies, and structures, to act in these ways alone, that is just to rely upon the skills that you and I bring to the table. To act in this way alone is to rely upon our schemes, to rely upon our abilities. What it is is an attempt to advance the mission of God apart from the power of the Spirit of God. Which is why you and I need to repent of this way of thinking. We need to repent of neglecting to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us. We need to repent of neglecting to rely on his power to work through us. Do you remember the promise of answered prayer from last week? We just talked about it there. It's verses 13 and 14 and John chapter 14. Do you remember the, what Jesus talked about when he gave that promise of answered prayer? He said this, listen, men, in the upper room, staring at him, and now subsequently you and I, as we get to eavesdrop in on this promise of answered prayer, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, if you ask anything according to my will, here is the promise that I give to you, I will do it. And one of my favorite applications of this kind of promise of praying big prayers in Jesus' name, praying big prayers according to the will of the Lord King Jesus, is when Jesus in Luke chapter 11 is answering the question to the disciples when they say, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And Jesus begins to teach them how to pray. He lands the plane of that little teaching time in verse 13 of Luke chapter 11 by telling them, Listen, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, here comes a greater argument, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? 
give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, friends. That promise that Jesus smushes together with prayer in his name, prayer according to his name. And he says, if we come, and here's on the lips of Jesus saying, listen, if, if you're asking me to be filled, if you're asking to give the Holy Spirit, the Father's a good Father, and he's going to give that gift. He's not stingy. So come and ask. Come and pray the big prayer. Pray according to his will because the Father is going to be glorified when his people are empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit and they go out in mission not resting and relying on their own ability, but going out resting and relying on the ability and the power of the helper. The helper who loves to help weak, needy men and women advance the the saving mission of our God. This is a magnificent promise. The promise of the Holy Spirit is a magnificent promise ripe with gospel advancing implications. And friends, in your daily walk as gospel witnesses, I cannot encourage you enough to pray in this way. Oh, Father, I'm asking, according to your will and for your glory and salvation, would you give the Holy Spirit so that the Delta Church people would be the people of God doing the work of God, empowered by the Spirit of God? God, if we are going to see Springfield, Illinois, and the surrounding areas become a gospel oasis in this area... It is going to be by you powerfully moving among us so that we will become merely instruments in your hand, empowered by your Spirit with the gospel of Jesus Christ on our lips. God, prevent us from systems and strategies and structures that rest and rely on man-centered power. God, save us from this. How are your lost friends going to hear about Jesus if you're just relying upon you to go and do it? It's going to come as the Holy Spirit fills us and shoots us out these doors and we look for opportunities day in and day out saying, Jesus, please, I need your help. And the Holy Spirit's going, I I love to help and I want to help. And so then we pray God, would you give the Spirit? We're asking you to, be, to fill us with the Spirit so that we'd go out with Spirit-led words and Spirit-filled boldness so that when you're constantly nudging us to go through those doors of gospel opportunity, we don't step into it relying upon us. We step into it saying, help, Spirit. I don't know what to say, Spirit. I don't know how to act, Spirit. I don't know what question, Spirit. I don't know the answer, Spirit. I don't know who to even talk to today, Spirit. Are you crossing my paths with somebody, Spirit? And I'm telling you, this is a prayer in Jesus' name. That's prayer according to the will of God. That's prayer that will result in God getting the glory. Because God is mighty to save. And he desires that none perish. And he delights to fill. He delights to move. He delights to use his people, empowered by his spirit, to be proclaimers 
of the good news of Jesus Christ. So the first point from Jesus is the promise of the Spirit for believers. The promise of the Spirit for believers which sets us up to see sort of the toppings. Remember the sandwich illustration? Now we're going into the toppings. Verses 19 through 24, something I'm just calling a world of difference. A world of difference. Starting in verse 19, Jesus pauses his talk about the Holy Spirit and turns his attention to the difference between the world and the disciples. The difference between the world and the the disciples. In verse 19, just notice that Jesus begins to teach. And he issues a threefold statement of fact. Just brush over these somewhat quickly. First, he says in verse 19, the world will no longer see him, but his disciples will see him. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, he says. After his death, Jesus will not appear to the world. But he will appear to his disciples after the resurrection. After the resurrection, Jesus is alive. He's not dead. That's the idea of resurrection. And he says to his disciples, because I live post-resurrection, promise, you also will live. Translation, because I've defeated sin, because I've defeated Satan, because I've defeated death, because I now live, your faith in me means you will now live. That is, Jesus' victory over death will result in eternal life for his followers. And in that day, you will know that I'm in my Father, you and me, and I in you. Second thing you see is that Jesus teaches that those who love him will keep or obey his commandments. Those who love him will keep or obey his commandments. Look at verse 21, on the front end of verse 21. Notice what Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, this is the one who loves me, he says. He also spoke something similar, if you go back up into verse 15, when Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, the statements sound very similar, but the emphasis on the way Jesus words it in verse 15 And the way he words it in verse 21, the emphasis is just slightly tweaked a little bit. Right? So if you look at what he says in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus is saying that love is the motivation to obey. Love is the motivation to obey. If you love me, there's love, now the motivation, your love for me means you will keep my commandments. If you go into, so we're reading the Gospel of John. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. The Apostle John also wrote three other letters or books in the New Testament. 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. So it's really interesting that I think the Apostle John, so much of what he learns from Jesus just gets plopped right over into his three letters. I mean, it is amazingly uh, intricately tied together. So you go over to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, and you read this on the lips of the Apostle John. He says, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, very big theological word. It just means wrath-absorbing substitute. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing substitute for our sins. In other words, says the Apostle John, when you skip down to verse 19 in 1 John 4, God first loved us. That's how he shrinks all that down. And because God first loved us, he says we can now truly love. Love him, love others. And when our hearts, listen, this is so crucial. When our hearts have been set free by the love of Jesus, this love transforms our motivation to obey the commands of Jesus from duty to delight. If I were just to come up here and say, I don't give a rip if you love Jesus or not. He gave us a bunch of commandments. Now just start doing them. You might shoot out of the gates with some gusto and some fervor and for a while do the commands. But eventually the commands begin to feel like duty because the commands are not motivated by the mercy and the grace and the love you've received from the Son. So Jesus is now here saying, listen, when you are loving me, you got to know it's because I first loved you. And this love you've received, it transforms our motivation to want to obey the commands. We begin to move from the commands of Jesus, from being just this burdensome duty, to being the overflow, natural result of delightful obedience. Why? Because he first loved me. And I see myself in the mirror all the time. I know me. I know my heart. I know I'm rather unlovely. But he loved and pursued me a sinner. And that blows my mind. The gracious love of the Savior. What? You want me to do this? Yes, out of the overflow of the love I've given. And of course I will pursue you and obey you and walk in this way. Love is the motivation for obedience. Just so you know, this is what happens when the love of Christ controls us, says the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. We become people who no longer live for themselves but live for Jesus, who for our sake died and was raised. How do we no longer live for us? And how do we live for Jesus, who died for us? Paul says, we will begin to experience that transition and that transformation of self-love, self-living, to Jesus' love, Jesus obeying, Jesus living, when we are controlled by the love of Christ, he says. So in verse 15, love is the motivation to obey. Jump down to verse 21. Sounds very similar, but tweaked a little bit. In verse 21, Jesus is just simply saying this. Obedience is the test of true love. Obedience is the test of true love. Whoever has my commandment and keeps them, that's obedience, he it is who loves me. So for someone to say, that they love Jesus, 
yet they live a lifestyle characterized by habitual, regular, rhythmic patterns of disobedience to Jesus. What Jesus is saying is you are a walking contradiction. Third, Jesus moves on and teaches that those who love him have an intimate union with the Father and the Son. That's just the tail end of verse 21. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So for those who love Jesus and obey his commands, they will be loved by the Father. Wow, that's good news. They will be loved by Jesus. That's good news. And they will get to see Jesus. Now, it's these statements from Jesus in this little, this little teaching, 19, 20, and 21, that are going to almost repeat themselves as Judas, not Iscariot, shows up and is like, e, I, I, I sort of can't wrap my mind around this. It's these statements from Jesus that prompt Judas, not Iscariot, to ask the question. So, okay, Lord, back in verse 19, you said something about the world not seeing you and we'll get to see you. So here's my question. How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Like, how's that whole thing going to shake out? Basically, Judas's question, question of why. Why do we get to see you and the world doesn't get to see you? Why is this the case? What's the distinguishing difference between the world and between those who follow you? Because those who follow you get to see you. Those who don't follow you don't get to see you. They don't have the promise of the Spirit dwelling within them, the presence of God being near and dear to them. So what's the distinguishing difference? Jesus' answer is that there's a world of difference between those who love him and those who do not love him. Those who keep his word and, and know the blessing of the presence of God in their lives. And then there's those, those who don't. Listen, those who, whose love for Jesus, those whose love for Jesus is genuine, will demonstrate this love by obedience to Jesus. The world, which has no desire to obey Jesus, keep his words. No matter whether they are the most staunchest of atheists or someone who is extremely religious, Jesus is saying when you look at the panorama of your life, if there is not some sort of growing, not perfect, not perfection here, but if there is not some sort of growing trajectory of regular, habitual pattern of desiring, seeking to obey and grow in Jesus. Again, not perfection, but growth, a trajectory of growth. It does not matter how much you might say you love Jesus. Your life is saying you don't love him because your life is not marked by this pattern of obedience. This is why no matter how much we might say we love Jesus, if our life does not reflect a life of submission to the king, submission to his rule and reign over us, submission to his commands and words, then Jesus says, this man, this woman does not love me. 
And so here's my hope this morning. My hope, this is just sort of, sort of hitting my mind here. My, my hope isn't to try to like freak some of us out who are genuinely walking with Christ. We're genuinely born again. We've genuinely tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We've genuinely repented of sin. We've genuinely placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're just sort of feeling that tension of, yeah, there's growth, but it's not maybe happening as, as much as I'd like, as quick as I'd like. It's sort of like two steps forward and one step back. I'm not here saying something about your salvation. I think that's just sanctification, and that's just sort of the process of growing. It's not perfection, but there's a general trajectory of being conformed in the image of Jesus. But I'm telling you, there's some of us here this morning who go around saying, I'm a Christian, I love God I like the church, I love Jesus, but the panorama of your life is marked by not obedience to anything that Jesus says. And Jesus in love is giving us this warning saying, don't be fooled by your sin. Because the fact that you can say something with your mouth, but the entirety of your life denies what you say with your mouth, don't be fooled by that reality. Remember, says Jesus, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. But whoever does not love me, their life will be marked by not keeping my word. Again, it's not enough. It is not enough to merely say, I love Jesus. We must ask ourselves if there is proof of that love evidenced in our lives. And Jesus says the evidence of true love for him will be a love-motivated, commandment-keeping Word-obeying life. So I challenge you. Ask yourself, is my life marked in this way? Jesus continues as he's answering Judas' question. He says, for those who love Jesus and keep his commandments, they have an outstanding promise. Do you see that at the end of verse 23? My father will love him and I will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The idea of word home is the exact same language that Jesus used back up at the beginning of John 14. You remember Peter's question? I just heard you say you're going somewhere and we can't go, but I want to go. And he's like, listen, no, 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 it's good because I'm departing and going to prepare a place, prepare a home for you in heaven. And so now Jesus is saying, but in the meantime, before you get to heaven, guess what? Not only am I preparing a place for you to go and live, we're going to come and live in you. That's, that's a mind bender right there. Chew on that one for the next 50 years of your life, right? To repent and believe means we've got the, the promise of life with the king forever. But in the meantime, it's not like we have to go around as orphans and paupers. He's coming to live in us. That's amazing to me. Jesus reassures them, guys, I'm not making any of this up. Into verse 24, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. It's not like Jesus ate a bad taco and he's just spitting insanity. He's like, no, 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 I'm telling you this stuff. This is coming straight from the Father. So, so you need to listen to what I'm saying to you right now. Because that's some heavy-hitting realities there. 
What do you mean God the Father and God the Son is going to come and dwell within us? Like, how is that going to work itself out? Well, that's what prepares us for the last point, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. And then again, he calls the Holy Spirit the helper. Praise be to Jesus Christ for calling the Holy Spirit the helper. Man, I need help all the time. More than I dare and care to admit I need help. And he says, here's someone living in you. That's the helper. Man, I love that language. How will he help? The Spirit will help by teaching the disciples all things and causing them to remember all that I've said to you. Listen, how does the Father and the Son dwelling within us, the promise of the Spirit and praying big prayers and the promise, how is all this going to work out, let alone all they've been learning in John 13 and 12 and 11 and 10 and 9 and on down the world? How are all these things going to hit and land and be flushed out and make sense? Jesus is saying right here, well, you've got to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here's what the Holy Spirit's going to do. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, the Holy Spirit, the helper, he's going to teach you these things after I'm gone. And he's going to cause you to remember these things after I am gone. With their minds reeling, hearts troubled, Jesus pours into them this great promise, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If there was a moment of clarity in it all, my guess is that at least one of the disciples is thinking to themselves, How are we supposed to walk in this way? How are we supposed to remember and understand all these things? But Jesus comforts them by saying the work, the ministry, the job of the Spirit is going to be to remind them precisely and accurately everything he has just said, which means very good news for this right here. Are you piecing that together? Peter tells us that this book was written by men carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Well, good for them, carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, that, what's that supposed to mean? Well, Jesus says in the upper room discourse, it means the world. Because when these guys are writing stuff, they're just not writing down gibberish and whatever in the world they want to write down. They're writing down what the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance and taught them concerning the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this isn't just a random Book with ink on paper, this is the words of Christ brought to remembrance and interpreted and taught by the Holy Spirit himself who carried along these men to go, ah, and start writing down these letters and writing down these gospels and writing down these acts of the history of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is why your Bible is remarkable and accurate and consistent. But then notice, just lastly, as we land the plane, verses 27 to 31, Jesus just turns now. He's done with the Holy Spirit and teaching on him. And he's just going to give a summary of what he's taught as he wraps up this time with reassurance. Look at verse 27. He gives the reassurance of his peace. Peace I leave to you. My peace I give to you. Jesus understands that right now feels like chaos, but he reassures his disciples that his departure by way of the cross will bring the peace they need with God. Therefore, let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. Verse 28, he reassures them of his return. Jesus is going to the Father. I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, but rest assured he will return again. I will come to you. 
verses 29, 30, 31. It's that third reassurance, the third reassurance of his victory. All that Jesus has told the disciples has been to strengthen their faith in the midst of coming trials. He says, listen, the ruler of this world is coming, but rest assured he ain't got no claim on me. Sign me up to follow that dude who walks around saying those things and has the power and authority to carry that out. There's a lot of people who can say, yeah, I ain't got no claim on me, but then they quickly bump into someone with more power and more authority. They're like, yeah, actually, they've got, more, they got a claim on you, man. they got a claim on you. When Jesus says the thing's about to, to play out because the ruler of this world is coming, what you need to understand, don't lose sight of this fact. He has no claim on me. This is a declaration of victory. That's the third reassurance. Peace, return, I, I'm, I got victory in my corner here. Just as Jesus told his disciples that they will demonstrate their love by obedience, that's what the end of verse 31 is talking about. So too, Jesus has demonstrated his love for the Father by obedience. And the loving obedience of Jesus on the cross is the victory the world needs to know in order to be saved. Just by, again, sort of side thought here, I'm so thankful that Jesus models that for us in this way. He's not asking us to do anything he's not, not already done. So there's your three reassurances, peace, return, and victory. The ministry of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the Holy Spirit. What a great Savior we serve, yeah? To love us in this way. Well, here's how I want us to close out this morning. We're going to do something similar to what we did last week and close out in prayer. Do you remember what we did last week? We talked about that idea of praying the big prayer. We tied it to the forward advance of the gospel. God, surely there's four people in our lives. Holy Spirit, would you just press on our heart, press on our mind one person, one person who doesn't know you. And I'm going to pray the big prayer in your name, according to your will, for the glory of the Father. Use me to be a gospel proclaimer who brings the gospel to them. And I am begging you, King Jesus, save this person. That's how we prayed last week. We're going to pray that way again. But the first thing we're going to pray is in this way. We're going to pray against the hindrance that we saw earlier and talked about earlier. Go back and think about what we said earlier concerning the greatest hindrance to the mission of God. What we said was the greatest hindrance to the advance of God's mission in the world today is the people of God doing the work of God apart from the Spirit of God. And so now what I want us to do is transition into just a time of prayer where we are going to corporately in the sense that i'm asking us all to do this but in a sense individually go and begin to just bang on the doors of heaven as we close out our morning by begging god to make us the people of god who do the work of god empowered by the spirit of god friends if there are people in your lives who don't know jesus and i'm making the assumption that you do you have people in your lives who don't know Jesus. They are not unreached for Jesus. Why? Because you are in their life. 
So let's ask King Jesus. Let's bank on his Luke 11 promise. If you ask to give the Spirit, I'm going to give it to you. I'm a good father. I'm, I'm going to do this. So let's ask him to give the Spirit so that as we're empowered by the Spirit, we'd walk in such a way where we'd get to partake in the greater works of the gospel advance of King Jesus in the lives of those around us. And then I'm going to ask that as you are just praying that, that we would pray some of those big prayers for our four, just like we prayed last week. I'm just going to start praying. My hope is that you would do the same. If you need to get on your knees and beg King Jesus with a posture of humility, then please do it. If you need to stand up and outstretch your hands and sort of like physically mimic the posture of like, like a help, like what's your little kid do when he comes up to you to help? He's going like this. He's like, <laughs> like he's coming up like this. When that little toddler's there, well, he can't say anything, but his physical posture is one of saying, I, I need some help. If you need to physically mimic that posture of your heart and just stand up and hold out your hand, man, I encourage you to do that. But right now, I'm asking you to not passively doze for the next two or three minutes, but to actively engage in the promise of answered prayer and asking for the promise of the Holy Spirit so that we would leave this week, next week, the months, the years to come as people empowered by the Spirit of God who will go forth proclaiming the gospel of God so that sinners might be saved. Let's do that now. Father, I'm asking that you would make us a people, your people, people saved by grace, people who know what it means to embrace your mercy, that you would make us the people of God who leave these four walls as missionaries going out into the world, called and tasked to do the work of God, but, oh God, would you prevent us from being those who go apart from the Spirit of God? Would you make us to be those who leave empowered by the Spirit of God? Father, we ask and bank on the promise that you are the good Father, the Father who delights to give, and we're asking that you would give, fill with the Holy Spirit so that the greater work of your kingdom, your gospel, your mission, advancing in the hearts and lives of those around us would come to fruition. Not because we're so great or talented or able, it's because we in help, in need, in dependence, said we cannot do this apart from your empowering spirit. God, help us to be a spirit-led people, a spirit-filled people. So that the four in our lives, that one right now that you're pressing on us, Father, would you bring salvation? Would you use us as an instrument in your hand to speak the life, death, and resurrection, the saving power of Jesus to these people so that they can hear and have an opportunity to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus for their salvation. God, use us. Awaken Delta Church to our need for the promise of the Spirit. It's in your name I pray, King Jesus. Amen.